Well, it was last week that we began to look at the issue of uh, Christian obedience in Exodus chapter 19. We uh, saw um, how Exodus 19 was, um, uh, began the process of giving the Israelites laws to live by. Not in order to be saved, they'd been saved before they'd moved uh, a, a single finger in uh, a response to God but uh, in order to live lives which glorified God that enjoyed God's presence we saw uh, how the fear of God was to, to be very, very important in their lives as uh, um, a healthy, um, awe-inspired worship which drives us to obedience and we saw a promise A promise that said, if you obey me fully, you will be a kingdom of priests. They would be a nation who would mediate the presence and blessing of God to the whole world. But here's the problem. Does Christian obedience today really draw people to God? seems to me most people are convinced um, who look from the outside on the Christian church, most people are convinced actually that Christian obedience is dull, restrictive, joy-killing duty. For most people, their, their image of what's it, what it means to be an obedient Christian is actually precisely what turns them away from the God of the Bible. It doesn't draw them to the God of the Bible. And most particularly, often it's the Old Testament that gets it in the neck, isn't it? Especially from the um, uh, uh, liberal elite who want to rubbish Christianity. They point to obscure laws like the one that um, I, I, I asked Claire to read right at the end of our time. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And they think, well, surely people don't object to goats strong enough today, so when we, we must abandon the Old Testament. They uh, point out some of the m- more brutal sounding laws. And all in all they say, how could a group of Christians who believe the Bible possibly have anything to say to us? Well, I want to say, actually, if we understand the, right, the Bible aright, even the Old Testament, then God's word has extraordinary things to say to us today, powerful things to say to us today, potent things to say to us today. And more than that, actually if God's people are understanding what God's word says to them and living it, then they will be truly attractive to the world. They will be a kingdom of priests. Now, let me say right at the outset, it would be foolish for us simply to import Old Testament laws into 21st century Britain. We are separated by a gulf of over 3,000 years, by and large. More significantly, many of the laws, um, especially the laws concerning sacrifice, were associated with, uh, were designed actually to help Israel to understand the death of Christ. Since Christ has died as our sacrifice, Uh, then uh, many of those laws, in one sense, are obsolete. We have a fuller revelation of what God was uh, talking about 
in Jesus, in the New Testament. But nevertheless, I want to suggest to you that actually the Old Testament law is still very relevant, actually more relevant than you may think. I want to um, show you that as we try to understand the values and the principles that informed these laws set in a late Bronze Age society, we can actually get a glimpse of what a radically attractive society Israel was supposed to be. And actually, what a radically attractive society today's church could be. I'm conscious that I'm going to leave many, many laws un- unexplained, many questions unanswered. You may, you may uh, uh, be frustrated by what we say uh, uh, this morning because all I want to do is to draw out briefly five key values that underpin Old Testament law, especially these Old Testament laws in Exodus 21 to 23. And uh, I hope, persuade you, that actually those key values, those core values, are vital for us today. And the first of those is what we've majored on so, uh, so, so far in our, our time together. We uh, um, have thought about God's concern for the poor found especially in the, the legislation about Hebrew servants or, or slaves actually probably it's uh, uh, we could call them in, in Exodus 21. Some people are actually embarrassed that the Old Testament tolerates uh, slavery but actually the laws that govern slavery gave those slaves more freedoms than perhaps many 19th century factory workers in this country. A master for instance could only oblige his servant or slave, to work for him for six years. Did you see that in verse 2 of 21? If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. In the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. Only the servant himself could prolong the contract. Verses 5 and 6. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him to the judges. He shall take him to the door or doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. They're a little bit more crude than uh, modern ear piercing salons today. To pierce his ear with an awl and then he will be his servant for life. Servants could choose. It clearly assumes that actually, in a proportion of cases, the uh, humanity of that uh, system of service was such that, a ser- that servants, slaves, would choose that for life. Servants as, or slaves have the same rights of compensation after physical injury as well as free people. Look at verse 26. If a man hits a manservant or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. Now, in all the surrounding cultures, slaves were treated simply as the property of the master to be used by him as, as he wished. There were laws, actually, um, uh, prosecuting people if they, if they injured slaves, but only because it was damaging the other master's property. 
nothing to do with the rights of those slaves. And Israel, 3,000 years ago, transformed the institution of slavery actually into a system much more like our modern welfare state. The most uh, common reason for becoming a slave in their society was bankruptcy, which resulted in the loss of the land. And rather than shove those people into a poorhouse for the rest of their lives or leave their family in poverty for generations, the bankrupt could pay off uh, what debts they had as a tied labourer um, up to a maximum of six years' service. After that, they would be allowed to go free and they would regain their land so that their family wasn't permanently in poverty. There is a level of humanity about these laws which actually our, our country only managed within the last hundred years. I don't know whether you know, but Oxford's workhouse was only closed in 1929. 3,000 years after Israel had said, the poor must go free. I wonder what that means for us as Christians. Well, perhaps especially it means we must care, we must treasure those who have the least status and the least power in society. Not in a naive way. The Old Testament law actually is quite carefully designed to ensure that poor people pay their debts as much as possible and, that, and to, to help them to re-establish themselves in their own rights. Some welfare actually can promote long-term dependency. Israel's laws prevented that. But nevertheless, as the New Testament makes it clear, a major responsibility, part of our responsibility as Christians is to remember the poor and the outcasts. It is so prominent in Scripture The uh, Christian author Tony Campolo tells of um, how once he happened to be um, in a Honolulu, Honolulu diner with uh, um, he had um, he was up in the small hours at three thirty in the morning when a, a group of loud prostitutes came into uh, this place and one of them named Agnes revealed that it was her thirty ninth birthday the next day. She said she'd never had a party in her life. Her friends mocked her. But after she'd gone, Campolo suggested to the man behind the counter named Harry, he said, why don't we throw her a party tomorrow night if she's in every night? So uh, the man thought this was a good idea. Next night, most of the prostitutes of Honolulu actually were gathered in that uh, late night diner when Agnes walked in and they sang her happy birthday and gave her a cake. She was actually so overcome that she uh, left the establishment. She couldn't cope. And everyone stood around not knowing what to do. And Tony Campolo said, well, why, why don't I pray for her? So he did. After he prayed, Harry at the counter said with a trace of hostility in his voice. Hey, you never told me you was a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? 
And Campolo answered, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry thought for a moment and then in a mocking way said, no you don't. There ain't no church like it. If there was, I'd join it. What did God say? Now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant you will be for me a kingdom of priests. How might the image of God's church be transformed? Simply by story after story like that. Second principle which um, not quite sure how best to put it, but I've put, put it in this way. Property is only money. Now what I mean by that is that actually uh, um, in the, uh, the Old Testament law, all the laws of theft and damage to property involve only financial compensation. In this country we lock up people for, for theft. In Israel they were made to reimburse the victim or at worst if they could not pay they would be made bankrupt and uh, uh, go into the slavery system we've already talked about. Normally, the payment, the compensation, was simply twice the amount that was stolen, um, presumably to return the thing that was stolen and, uh, and to, 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 to uh, pay a sort of proportional punitive amount for the loss that that person has had in, in the process of having it stolen. Actually, a, um, an exception to that is found in the early part of chapter Exodus 22. And uh, if we examine it, I think we can understand simply the, the, the rationale that there is behind the laws of theft. Verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Verse 4, if the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back only double. A simple theft of an animal was just like every other theft. But if the cattle or sheep are sold or slaughtered and therefore those sheep cannot be returned, then four or five-fold compensation is required. Why? Well, let me suggest to you why. In the uh, um, foot and mouth outbreak of a, of a couple of years ago, there was a, a herd of cattle slaughtered on uh, uh, the edge of Dartmoor that had uh, been there as a, as a herd for over a hundred years. Not those cattle you understand, but generations of the herd. Those cattle had developed a, a herd memory, a rhythm of uh, life. Actually an extraordinary one whereby they would uh, um, be up on the moor in the summer. They could in theory wander anywhere they liked uh, up to 30 miles away but um, uh, they stayed reasonably close up on the moors and then actually when the autumn came every year spontaneously the cattle came down and would wait at the uh, gate of the farm to be let back from the open moor back into the farm. That, to have that herd of cattle slaughtered in the foot and mouth 
was far greater loss to that farmer than just the value of the cattle. It would take a generation at least, possibly longer, to to re-establish a herd that was so easily manageable on that land. And stories like that um, uh, amongst traditional farming communities can be repeated again and again and again. My father has been uh, um, breeding a closed flock of sheep on his land for 50 years. They are adapted to that land. They, they survive well on the management practices that he has. If he had lost the, his sheep, as he nearly did in Puttenmouth, it wouldn't have been just the value of the sheep that he lost. It would be 50 years' work. Traditional farming communities understand why the livestock, particularly, if they're slaughtered, if they can't be returned, must be more fully compensated for. There is a calculation that is going on. How much loss is there to this person? We must reimburse them. But in the end it was only financial compensation. All the surrounding cultures actually were mutilating and executing thieves. Actually only 200 years ago a direct descendant of mine was prosecuting a thief for stealing sheep and uh, he was executed. I've got the uh, Old Bailey record to prove it. But 3,000 years before that Israel was saying a person shall not die but only theft because in the end it's only money. But, says the Old Testament law, people, people are different. People are sacred. To use the Bible's language, people are in the image of God. Physical injuries and uh, murder are treated with much more seriousness in Old Testament law. The case of a uh, bull goring someone in Exodus 21 perhaps helps, helps us to understand some of the principles that are, that are going on when, uh, uh, when personal injury is the, is the issue in the law. In verse uh, 28 it makes it plain that accidents sometimes happen and uh, not, al- not always is anyone responsible. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. But, says the law, if the owner was actually proven to be negligent, then he is guilty of murder, verse 29. If the bull has been in the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. Yes, there is a death penalty in the Old Testament. In fact, there is a wider principle in the Old Testament of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Many people find that actually barbaric. But in its day, that principle was a major step forward in the process of justice. There's actually no evidence that this, uh, this law was practised in the sense of um, mutilating people, as, as sometimes it appears to be suggesting in, uh, in the Old Testament. They're just, 
there just is no record of an eye being put out for an eye. And the, the, even the death penalty, which, absolute, which certainly existed, can be commuted in certain cases, as it can be here. Look at verse 30 of chapter 21. If, however, payment is demanded of him, he may, this is the uh, reckless person who allowed his bull to gore someone, he may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. The eye for an eye legislation wasn't to encourage mutual mutilation. It was to prevent the rich abusing the poor. Now just think about it for a minute. You see, if, if, a, if there's just a fixed financial penalty for um, physical injuries, then a rich person can go around injuring others and pay for it out of his petty cash. He can act with impunity towards the bodies of other people. And the Old Testament will not allow that. Because every human being is equally in the image of God and equally deserves protection. There must be injustice, an equivalent hurt to the rich person, even if in the end, as it seems to have been, that hurt is measured in financial uh, terms, it must be something which actually hurts the rich man as much as uh, that person he has hurt has been injured. It is a radical statement of the equality of all people. Rich people can't get away with just paying for their abuse of the poor with their pin money. Even unborn babies are protected, says verses 22 and following of chapter 21. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, that is to the baby, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Are we more enlightened than ancient Israel, do you think? Do we have nothing to learn from this 3,000 year old text? We who have aborted 5 million fetuses since the 1960s? People are precious. There is a, there is a sacredness about dealing with other people. Because every human being, whether it be an un unborn infant or an elderly person about whom we are debating whether we should euthanize them, is precious. And in God's church, We are to treat people in that way. We are to treat uh, people uh, rich and poor, 
respectable and disreputable with equal dignity as equally valued made in the image of God. A fourth principle. Stable families are absolutely central in God's plan. We can't say a lot about this, but let me just uh, um, uh, point out uh, one thing in particular. In Israel, sex outside of marriage, w- marriage was punished vigorously. Adultery demanded the death penalty, though again it could be uh, commuted. But sex between unmarried people, says chapter 22, is tantamount to marriage. Look at verse 16 of chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. Provision was given, actually, that a wise father could make a judgment that, uh, that such a marriage would, be, uh, would cause more trouble than it, than it solves and so um, um, uh, not allow the marriage. Verse 17, if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride, pi- bride price for virgins. But all in all, the Old Testament makes the strongest possible connection between sex and marriage. Why? Well, firstly, sex is designed to bind people together. If it, is, if it is used outside of marriage, it first of all forges inappropriate bonds, but it also breaks appropriate bonds, either through adultery or through just weakening of the, of the, the sense of the, the value of sex because of the number of sexual partners that people have had before they decide to get married. And secondly, and just as importantly, every effort is made in Scripture to ensure that children are raised within stable married homes. Because they need that. And adults have to restrain some of the liberties perhaps they would like to have for the sake of the children. Our, our, our nation doesn't give much voice to children. Hence, actually, the dominant voices shout and cry and rail against evangelicals because they want, the adults want to maintain their sexual liberty. They will not look clearly and honestly at the damage that is being done to a rising generation of kids. As the tide of sexual, sexually transmitted diseases and broken homes and maladjusted children rises, it will become clearer and clearer that what Christians say is true and the venom against evangelical Christians will get more and more intense. We must stand clearly 
with God and say no sex outside marriage is a serious breach of trust the New Testament does not um, prescribe stoning for adulterers but unrepentant sexual sin is one of the few situations which is specifically mentioned in the New Testament as demanding excommunication we cannot authentically claim to be Christians if we are committed to serious sexual sin. It is not possible. But more than that, I think, the New Testament uh, calls us to um, function as, as a new family for all sorts of people who actually are not in conventional families, some, often through no fault of their own. In the Bible it's, it's widows and orphans. Today it's single mums, people from damaged homes, the increasing number of people who for one reason or another are still single. Actually, biblically, the church is our first family, the family of God. Psalm 68 verse 6 says God sets the lonely in families and this is where it happens. If it happens at all, this is where it is going to happen. As people actually from an increasingly damaged world find themselves in a new extended family. Now those of us who uh, um, uh, live and function within stable and happy nuclear and extended families we have a responsibility to reach out beyond that to our brothers and sisters and incorporate them into our lives. Those actually who are single have the responsibility as well to live together and function together, not as isolated individuals, but as an extended family. And this was never more necessary than today when we are having to pick up the pieces from a society that has lost sight of this fundamental biblical principle without stable families human beings fall apart then perhaps we will be a kingdom of priests and one last principle and there could have been others but uh, let's Stop at this one. Life is for celebrating. Only those who haven't read the Bible think that Christian obedience is about dull duty. Look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 23. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the feast of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the, from the field. Three great feasts are to punctuate their year. A feast, first of all, that celebrated their, their freedom, their liberty from, um, uh, from Egypt. And then two free feasts that, that celebrate God's provision for them. The, feast, the, the first fruits and then the full harvest. 
factor um, when, when you look at it. The whole life of Israel was designed to be a celebration of the goodness of God who had brought them out of slavery and into a land filled with uh, flowing with milk and honey. Life is for celebration. It is a solemn instruction from God. Life is for celebration. They were to rest on the Sabbath day to celebrate that they were no longer slave labourers and, and could rest. They were to be kind to foreigners because they had been foreigners and been oppressed so they were to give the blessing of not being oppressed to others. They were to be uh, uh, kind to their fellow countrymen with whom they were at odds. Their enemy, it's described as uh, in the um, early part of chapter 23, because even if you do have differences with brothers and sisters, be generous to them. Because God who had a difference with us has been so generous to us. Life is for celebrating, for grace, for love, for delight, for pleasure. Do you see the attractiveness of those values of Israelite society? Do you see the wisdom of them? Caring for the poor, not letting money take too big a, big a, big a place in our life, but valuing people as priceless, stable families, celebration. At the end of this uh, giving of the law, God makes a promise to Israel. Verse 20 of chapter 23. See, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way to bring you to the place I have prepared. In many ways it anticipates what Jesus said when he was risen from the dead and spoke to his disciples. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Obedient lives enable us to mediate the presence of God to the whole world to become a kingdom of priests. So what about you? What has God laid on your heart this morning? I don't know what that will be. But I want to encourage you one thing. One thing from this, this big picture that I need to get right in my life. That I need to do something about. And then take that one thing and pray. Please God help me to be obedient. Because I want to be used by you to bless the world.